keeping you updated. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tonney. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast for Friday, March the 11th. On the programme today, we took a look at the new donations regulatory law and what it means for charitable giving as we approach Ramadan. As ever, we went right to the top and we spoke to Her Excellency Hessa Talak, who is Assistant Undersecretary of Social Development in the Ministry of Community Development. Meanwhile, a group of intrepid UAE residents are planning to row across the Atlantic Ocean next year. They've just launched their historic bid at the Dubai International Boat Show and will be joined by one of the crew, Toby Gregory, to find out how they're preparing for rogue waves and endless skies. And we launched something special on the programme this morning. It is our new segment, Eye on Education, which will be broadcast from 11am until 1pm every Friday. We found out what the government is doing to encourage youngsters to read with His Excellency Ali Al-Shali from the Ministry of Youth and Culture. We also discussed the importance of inclusivity in schools with the KHDA and Laura Evans, who is Head of Inclusion for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Also, Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor joined us on the line. Plus, we marked the second anniversary of the start of distance learning in the UAE and we found out the long-term impact of school closures on children with Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And we also spoke to Marjan Faradouni. Now, she's in charge of the education programme at Expo 2020 Dubai. And we found out about the legacy plans for the educational project there. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And a very warm welcome to this special education segment, Eye on Education. We will be running this every single Friday uh, from 11 o'clock for a couple of hours. Uh, I have to say we are hugely excited about it because it is a chance for us to discuss uh, one of the biggest, uh, well, it's one of the biggest sort of issues of our time, which of course is the education of our children. It's it's the future of our children. I mean, I can get very poetic and say it's, you know, it's the future of our, of our world. Uh, but we all know that, that our children's education is the most important thing for us. Now, we want to sum up the top headlines that basically have been coming out this week. And it's been a very, very busy week when it comes to education stories. I have to say, uh, not least because we had the KHDA's wellbeing census report, didn't we, Z? Yes, they were released earlier this week. We've been discussing the results with teachers, education experts, and of course, uh, officials from the Knowledge and Human Development Authority. You've been speaking to Hind Almuala, who is the Chief of Creativity, Happiness and Innovation at the KHDA. Now, the results suggest that students Students were generally happy last year and had great relationships with their friends and teachers. So uh, we've been asking Hind whether there, there are areas that need improvement and what schools could do about them. When it comes to the students' life, there is um, no one size fits all. And this is why every school gets a detailed report on what their student says. And so the action plan and what's not working here in this particular school might be different than the other, but in general, not just in way, children, when they get old, their uh, their perception of well-being get less, and their sleep goes down, their um, regular breakfast diet goes down, so all of this while you are growing up, certain behaviors and practices you do on your day is impacted, and this influences your perceived well-being. 
Meanwhile, the survey found that adults were finding it hard to cope with the changes in the education sector. Uh, Basically, more than 9% of the adults, basically the teachers, reported they were really struggling. Now, that's up from 6% last year. The number of respondents who said it was hard to switch off outside work hours nearly doubled from 35% to 68%. I asked Hint what could be done about this problem. This is something we wanted to give the teachers a voice and we have a voice collectively actually from all the schools and it's interesting. One one thing that stood out of course is the work-life balance which was quite um, evident that needs to be addressed and this is why in many of the schools you will notice that we do have a well-being festival this because there is a lot of information to share and a lot of um, experiences and practices that we can learn from each other and we noticed that a lot of schools are actually coming up with the policies to address this i.e. no emails after working hours or whatever so uh, to to cover this aspect. Another interesting point in this particular survey is that we've noticed there is a link between those who are consistently driving and the work-life balance. So sometimes you are you are uh, very engaged with your work. You are consistently driving, but also your work-life balance is impacted with that passion and enthusiasm. And the the, the advice from the experts here is that you really need to take care of yourself because as a professional, you don't want to reach the level of burnout. So at the moment, the KHDA is hosting a wellness week, which is actually lasting three weeks, uh, a wellness festival. Uh, And one of the speakers at that festival is David Bott. Now, he's an author and education consultant. He also sits on the Dubai Future Council on Education, and he wrote a book called 10 Things That Schools Get Wrong. I spoke to him earlier this week, and he told me that schools don't have to make radical changes to ensure their students and teachers' well-being. Sometimes what we see is schools try to just do one little thing or they read a book about meditation and one teacher for one week tries a little meditation for five minutes and it doesn't work or it's not well thought through. Um, So we need to be careful with these kind of strategies, but when they're done well, they can be massively powerful. And we've worked with a lot of schools who have very carefully embedded these little small practical strategies. Another example we use regularly is brain breaks. You know, there's a lot of emerging neuroscience showing that sitting down for extended periods of time for a child to be sitting for 10, 15, 20 minutes changes brain chemistry and causes our brains to kind of go into this energy preservation mode where we don't learn very effectively. And so a little energetic brain break can just get getting their kids standing up, moving around the room, doing a little activity, waving their hands around, sitting back down can take one or two minutes, but radically alters brain chemistry and causes a, a much more fertile neural learning environment for a child. And so that kind of little strategy informed by neuroscience has come through wellbeing science and is causing teachers to do little things in classrooms that are making a difference, using kids' names more effectively, using eye contact, the way classrooms are being set up, the way homework's being assessed, the way questions are being asked in class. All all of these um, kind of little strategies that teachers use all the time are being informed by wellbeing and are making a big difference. Another one of the major headlines uh, that came out this week regarding education uh, is that school leaders have been urged in Dubai not to take shortcuts while carrying out background checks on teachers uh, in this rush to fill vaccinations. Uh, Vacancies. Vacancies. Yeah. 
Zina, give us a bit more on that. Okay, so this is actually a story that uh, caught our eye. It's on the national website. Basically, when you recruit a teacher, you ha- they have to go through, you know, a lot of uh, sort of uh, approvals, uh, and recruiters are being asked to look for red flags, uh, long gaps in employment history, look at their CVs carefully. Anyway, the KHDA, who's uh, Dubai's private school regulator, requires candidates to produce a police clearance certificate uh, so to prove that they don't have a criminal criminal record before they can obtain a work visa. But of course, recruiters are being urged because we need a lot of teachers here in Dubai. Please uh, study those teachers' documents carefully and look at their backgrounds. Absolutely. My goodness, that is uh, that is an ABC one when it comes to making <laughs> sure that your staff are safe. Uh, and I'm sure there are problems here in the UAE. I'm sure those are going through nicely. Uh, meanwhile, uh, away from schools, but also but still on the subject of learning, the Department of Health has launched the Abu Dhabi Healthcare cyber learning program with an aim to upskill and educate more than 58,000 healthcare professionals on cybersecurity, potential risks and threats, global best practices on patient data privacy, and also health information security. Uh, it's part of the Amen program that was launched last November uh, to evaluate healthcare facilities for their compliance with information security standards. Uh, it's good to know that our digital health records and all the technology used in the medical field are being safeguarded. I find that reassuring. Do you find that reassuring? We I, all find it reassuring. I do. All of you know my entire family's digital records. And I really like the fact, because I have uh, friends who are nurses in Abu Dhabi, I really like the fact that uh, the, Abu Dhabi, the Abu Dhabi Department of Health is thinking about, you know, upskilling and... Uh, Yeah, basically adding to what they already know. Right. Up next, we're going to be discussing another major headline, which was, of course, the fact that it is two years now since schools were closed on the 8th of March 2020. And you'll remember back to that date. It was because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to use this as an opportunity to discuss how schooling has changed and also how students have survived that period. Uh, Joining us in just a few minutes will be Claire Turnbull, who is principal of the Royal Grammar School Dubai. I'm very much looking forward uh, to hearing her views on the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the education of this generation. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. So we're already enjoying our brand new special segment on education. It is our chance to really put the spotlight on the big issues that concern parents, pupils and teachers. And there isn't a bigger one than this because it's been two years since schools were closed in the United Arab Emirates because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The anniversary of that announcement was the 8th of March. The closure lasted until September 2020 in Dubai. I remember it very vividly and much longer for children in Abu Dhabi. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, schools have stayed closed for much, much longer. For example, the only just reopening in the Philippines after a two-year hiatus. Izzy Feingold, who's Chief of Education at UNICEF Philippines, is concerned about the problems associated with their children in the Philippines not going to a physical school for so long. They include what he calls learning loss. What we are seeing in in the other countries is that the learning loss can go, in the best cases, to 30%, and in the worst cases, to 70%. So that is a significant 
loss of learning. But also there are other effects in terms of dropouts. Some of the kids will not return to school. Child labor in terms of teen pregnancy for the adolescent. So in general, uh, the, the kids are more protected in schools. They have different uh, services that they receive. Not being able to go to school can have higher costs than the risk of getting covid so obviously that is a, a very sort of extreme situation there in the Philippines. Here in the UAE, we're fortunate we have a very different situation. But to discuss the potential issues that could have been raised uh, by those months of distance learning, those months of, uh, of home schooling, we are joined on the line now by Claire Turnbull, who is the principal of the Royal Grammar School Dubai. Hello there, Claire. Thank you for joining us on the line and on Microsoft Teams. Georgia, it's lovely to see you and to be with you online as well. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Now, it is, I suppose it's the biggest sort of issue of our time now that the, the sort of health risks of COVID-19 have, have sort of slightly abated, certainly here in the UAE. We are looking at this long-term impact of the pandemic on the education of this generation of children. Now, obviously, your expertise uh, is expands from the UK all the way out here to the UAE. So you have this brilliant sort of uh, broad spectrum of experience and knowledge. Do you think that there is going to be a long-term impact for children? I'm, there is absolutely an impact, but it's interesting. There's a lot of research that is saying it's very much linked to how engaged the pupils were in their learning and, and with other people during uh, COVID. Um, Hattie's a classic example for talking about that when he was doing comparing the research with the Christchurch um, earthquakes. Um, and it, it from there, we know that if the students were engaged, if they were emotionally connected with their learning, then actually the impact loss is substantially reduced. The things that we have found, um, obviously RGS uh, Guildford Dubai has only opened in August. And so we had a number of children who joined us having not uh, been in school for a while. And we noticed uh, a real uh, loss to begin with in social interaction with their peers fabulous interaction with adults. They've been at home having this marvellous uh, um, connection with you guys as parents. Not always uh, easy, I know, for you, um, but actually more difficult peer on peer. Um, so we spent a lot of time, as I know lots of other schools did, in building up those social interactions and those opportunities for play um, with their peers rather than with adults. But um, there have also been lots of benefits and we mustn't shy away from that, especially for people here in the UAE, where the transition to online learning was so successful um, and there was such an um, impetus um, led by the KHDA to make sure that that student engagement and the learning continued. So I think here in the UAE, we are very, very lucky. But the social impact and that um, emotional peer-on-peer -peer work has had an impact that I know that all schools are addressing. That's absolutely fascinating to hear that. I actually haven't really heard it sort of di dissected in that way in the past. Were there particular age groups that, that struggled more than others? 
So we, uh, we at the RGS Guild for Dubai, we are uh, open at the, this year for FS1 through to year six. So if I can pertinently talk about that experience, um, some of our children in FS1 and FS2 hadn't really been to schools or nurseries. So for them, coming into uh, us was their first experience. And I know that's been the same for many schools across uh, the UAE. And so for them, it was about separation they hadn't been away from their families uh, as you would normally have had. Um, it was about learning to share with other, other children. So we saw that there. Internationally, the, the, in the primary phase, there's been a real impact that shows in our year twos and our year threes who have really missed some of their social interaction of play um, during foundation stage and year one. And have, uh, there have been gaps there. Um, easy to fill not a problem at all but marked um, compared with years previously this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai sister school to one of the most respected schools in the united kingdom now accepting applications from fs1 to u7 so we are discussing the long-term impact of COVID-19 on children's education, in particular, the impact of those months of distance learning. I want to know whether you've seen any problems or had any difficulties with your children. Please do get in touch, 4001, or you can message us for free on the ARN Play app or WhatsApp or call us on 04871 I've been joined on the line by Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School Dubai, who's very kindly stayed with us. Hello there, Claire. Hi, Georgia. Still there. Thank you so much. Uh, Now, we've spoken about the children restarting school, lacking certain social skills among their peers. Uh, But I want to find out how quickly they settled back into school life. We've had this message from Annabelle. Uh, She said, my children were so afraid of going back to school last year. Perhaps we adults scared them into staying at home during the times when we were supposed to. Today, I've noticed they're also less enthusiastic to go out and play with other children. They're also not that keen on PE because they were told for so long not to touch others. Uh, Now, I want to sort of mine your expertise on this. Is there anything that parents and teachers can do to help in that type of situation? Yeah, absolutely. It's understandable, isn't it? If our children have only seen us uh, being cautious as adults, they they will take their their cue from us. So I think it's about us modelling that it's absolutely fine to do this. Uh, for us to take the lead, we made sure that all our teachers were were showing that it was okay to to play together, to talk, to role model leading those PE activities. Activities. And then children know that it's not just words that it's okay, but it's our actions that, that we're all comfortable that so long as we're taking reasonable precautions, all of this is good development for us. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate how much our ch- children pick up by osmosis. Um, and, uh, you know, they are. Some of our younger ones have only seen us sanitising our hands left, right and centre. So, of course, that's going to uh, need us to say it's fine for us to do this because the, the toys are sanitised, because the world is now changing, because the situation has, uh, has evolved. We have to role model that.
Words are not good enough. It's so interesting to hear if you, you put it that way. And I hope that I'm probably doing that in my own household. And I'm sure the teachers uh, at my children's school are doing it as well. I mean, I know that RGS, you start at the very, with the really young ones, you know, the RGS Dubai, you have the really young ones, uh, the, the three-year-olds. Um, did you see, I, I mean, I had problems with my youngest. We decided to actually move him back a year. Uh, he was already very young for his year, but because I was so deeply terrible at teaching him how to read and write (laughs) during distance learning. We decided to actually hold him back a year. And I just wonder how many children you saw coming in who hadn't been able to go to nursery and hadn't therefore had the opportunity to learn their numbers and their letters. Can you catch up on that quite quickly when you're really young? Yes, you can. Absolutely. You can catch up on it really, really quickly. Um, uh, I'm I actually I'm a great supporter if it's right for your child the, to do the action that you've done uh, really sensible. But actually within their learning, progress happens so quickly, as you will know. One day they can't uh, string two, two letters together and blend. The next day it's as if they've been doing it all the time. Um, it's a bit like that movement from crawling to walking, isn't it? So progress happens very, very quickly. All it takes is real quality teaching um, and really drip feeding those uh, the catch up learning that we need to do. So certainly at our term one, like many schools in Dubai, we really did allow ourselves time to catch up and then move on. And we feel that progress has been made really quickly. So you already are in the stage of, of having sort of moved on. I mean, obviously, globally, it's, it's a difficult situation for schools. Yeah. But here in the UAE, where we have, I mean, we're so lucky with our facilities and our schools and, and, and our top quality teachers, that, that are we, is there, is there no legacy? Have we almost bypassed it immediately? I think it depends if we're talking about the social emotional. Um, I think we are playing real catch up there. But you never know what's going to come in the future. So it's really important we're still tracking that. Um, For some of our children, um, for phonics and uh, for maths, it will probably take a few more months. Um, I'm talking about in the primary phase. But with the planned systematic work that goes on here in the UAE, like you say, amazing teaching and amazing schools. I I don't envisage there'll be long-term issues academically for that elsewhere in the world who haven't got the advantage of uh, the robust system that was in place here with the, the, the really systematic and quality teaching going on. Of course, there may be a greater impact. And certainly globally, I'm sure there will be an impact based on economical uh, uh, positioning of families, which is uh, a tough one for us to to address globally. I know that um, if my children, for example, had just been left with me for any longer, we would be facing a a serious uh, educational gap there. So thank goodness they are back in the schools. Uh, I mean, my experience of distance learning, as I have spoken about repeatedly, on the radio was was very very challenging uh, but how about the positives that have come out of of this pandemic we're always searching for those and, and what's merciful is that in education there really are some positives 
There are so many positives. There are positives about uh, way the way we work, but there are also so many positives about the way children have 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 learnt or have developed technological skills that are just now complete second nature to them. Um, and we mustn't lose those silver that silver lining because those can really improve the efficacy of learning. Um, they have also learnt to be more independent at times. I think a lot of our children have learnt resilience and have been able to to say it's not always straightforward I've got to find out a way but you know independently supported by my uh, school um, and my teachers and also I think the children have learnt um, to engage with their peers online safely um, and again what a uh, what a great uh, life skill for them. Very good to end that conversation on a slightly positive note before, before we all get slightly depressed. Uh, it is lovely. There's been some messages coming in. Zena has been keeping an eye on our text line. Zena, what's coming in at the moment? Lovely message from Samuel, Georgia and Claire. Thanks a lot for this talk. We're facing the same issue with my second son. It's always the second one, Samuel. It's always <laughs> the second one. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that message. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, and Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us. We really appreciate your expertise and your time. And we look forward to talking to you in the future, I hope. Absolutely, Georgia. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. Fantastic. That is Claire Turnbull, who is principal of Royal Grammar School, Dubai. And we are still asking you guys the question, you know, have you noticed a long-term impact of COVID-19 on your children's education? Are you worried that they're not catching up? Are you worried that they haven't, uh, you know, made progress for some reason at school? And as Claire just mentioned there, one of the sort of legacy concerns uh, that that her, she sees from her expertise is that uh, sort of slight lack of social skills for children among their peers. Is that something that you've noticed? This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. I think it's fair to say that one of the the biggest sort of events for education in the UAE over the last six months has, of course, been Expo 2020 Dubai, because... Whereas for many people, it's it's just entertainment. It is also an incredible educational resource. And certainly every time I've taken my children out there, uh, they've just learned a huge amount, almost by osmosis. It's those amazing pavilions. They're such sensory experiences uh, that they often learn a lot without, you know, having to sit down with a pencil and paper or even better than putting themselves in front of a screen. So I wanted to, when we started this this special segment on education, I wanted to make sure that we addressed the progress that had been made by Expo 2020 Dubai. And as we like to do it on the agenda, we have gone right to the very top. Uh, we are joined now on the line by Marjan Faradouni. She is the Chief HR and Visitor Experience Officer at Expo 2020 Dubai and a, a huge star in her own right, thanks to Expo 2020 Dubai. Thank you for joining us on the line and on Microsoft Teams. Thank you, Georgia, for having me. I'm really excited to be on the call today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Give us the lowdown on how many children have attended Expo on one of your educational trips, because my kids have been twice at least. So you can add, add another two to that. Amazing. That's great to hear, Georgia. We're very proud to say, uh, despite the challenges we've faced uh, because of Corona, uh, we've welcomed over 700,000 students to, through our Expo school program. And we're looking to welcome 
come more in the uh, next uh, 20 days to the closing. Uh, so it's been a great, um, you know, past couple of weeks with the schools. It's wonderful to have them on site. Uh, it's really wonderful to see all ages, too, coming through our program. I'm happy to hear that your kids came uh, with them, too. Oh, yeah, they absolutely loved it. Now, I know you had difficulties at the beginning of this year, obviously, with the unexpected restrictions that were reintroduced, probably because of the Omicron wave. Have all the children who wanted to go on a trip to Expo been able to? Uh, we're hoping to. I mean, uh, over 700,000 is, um, we think, uh, you know, we'd love more. Um, but, you know, we're talking about uh, around a million student population. So we still have uh, opportunities for those who haven't come through their schools to, uh, you know, book slots. We're very happy to announce that uh, we've added slots on Sundays for those schools who are interested to come on Sundays, which is a weekend. We've also added slots on Fridays. And I'm very happy to announce today on the call that we've also communicated to schools that they can come and bring their students through school trips over the spring break. So we're offering trips from the 25th of March all uh, up to the closing, which is the 31st of March. So we have been adding slots to make sure that all schools are able to come to Expo. So what is the aim of the educational program when the children come in? Is it different for different age groups? So, for example, my youngest yesterday uh, went to the sustainability district and had the best time in the pavilion and then went and splashed in the Brazilian pavilion. Uh, so he had an amazing time. But, but what was the, what, how have you sort of targeted your program? So uh, to start with, uh, Georgia, I'd like to say that uh, the expo is basically the classroom coming to life. You're talking about over 200 opportunities for for the kids to learn about the, our themes of sustainability, opportunity and mo- mobility in ways uh, that complements what's happening in the classroom. So we've tailored these uh, journeys to the expo depending on the age group. So we've have special tours for KG students, special tours for cycle one, cycle two, and cycle three. For the cycle three, we let them on their own uh, because they're old enough to make their own decisions. So we give them guides when they come in, uh, guides through what they could potentially do. But the younger cycles have guides, and these guides are basically taking them through journeys. Uh, now, for the younger kids, kids it's different because um you know they're they're so small it's not as long as what it is for cycle two so if uh, you know depending on the age group uh, the number of hours on site is different um and uh, you know depending on the age group they could cover more pavilions than others so the younger ones may cover a minimum of two to three but the older ones can go up to seven my niece was here last week and she like went to five different pavilions including the water feature and what's very important about uh how we've tailored it to the age group it's also how we message um, you know the themes and the tours for each of these age groups so uh, of course as you would know having kids um, you know talking to a cycle one student is different than talking to the cycle two students is different than talking to the cycle three students so we've had all these and we've taken all of these into consideration and above uh, you know the content that's being delivered to the kids that are different and safety is also equally important and um, and and we look at what the capabilities of each of these kids are so what Walking distances is something that we take into consideration, number of hours outside. Um, So that's how we've tailored all of these school journeys for the different age groups. Now I'm going to get into terrible trouble for asking this question because we're late for the news. But in 30 seconds, can you tell me what the plans are for the legacy of the programme? Because I can't believe it's nearly all over. Well, uh, you know, it's very sad to say that, you know, this experience can never 
uh, repeat. That's why I encourage those uh, schools who haven't gotten their students here to go to our website, schools.expo2020dubai.com. The legacy of this is really the memories of what the children will remember from these school trips. But we also have our school resources that we've been sharing way before we opened our gates. That will also be something that could forever be used in classrooms. So those are two major parts of our uh, legacy of these programs. But I have to say it's the memories. And, you know, these kids coming back and say, I became whoever I am because I visited the World Expo. Thank you so much, Marjan Faradouni, Chief HR and Visitor Experience Officer at Expo 2020 Dubai, just about to culminate her last, I mean, for years you've been working on this and now you're about to culminate it all. So congratulations. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And remember, if you if your children have already been and you've listened to this and you want to take them to Experience Expo 2020, remember it is free for them and you could just take them this weekend. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back. And we are really enjoying our brand new special segment on education. It is our chance to really put the spotlight on the big issues that concern parents, pupils and teachers. And at 12.07, I imagine most people are getting back into their cars after the school pickup because it is, of course, at the end of the day for schools in the UAE. Well, certainly in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, Sharjah, they didn't even go to school this morning, lucky things. Um, Now, the big topic for us this hour is the subject of inclusivity in schools because the latest inspection by the KHDA or the Knowledge and Development Authority which runs the private schools here in Dubai says that 71% of schools in Dubai are inclusive. Uh, we asked uh, Fatima, Fatima Belharihi who is Chief Executive Officer of Dubai Schools Inspection Bureau at the KHDA to give us a little bit of an update about the situation and why inclusivity is so important. There's a lot going on when it comes to inclusion in Dubai's private schools. We know for a fact that schools are consistently making an effort to become more inclusive. Over the past seven years, we have implemented a dedicated inclusive education quality framework that has really shaped and guided the approach of schools when it comes to inclusion. The impact we've seen is clear and school inspection results are a clear indicator of what has changed in recent years. Compared to only 39% of schools providing an inclusive education that was rated good or better in 2014, the latest inspection data shows us that the number has reached 71% of all schools in Dubai. This is a significant improvement. You will be happy to know that all schools in Dubai have dedicated teams and inclusion champions who provide information, support and guidance for students of determination and their families. The journey towards inclusion in our schools is one that is always ongoing and does not have an end point. As the diversity of student populations increases, different barriers and opportunities also arise. Jenny got in touch with us to say it is important to her that her daughter goes to a mainstream school. I think it's a fantastic thing that the, that the schools are make, meeting their targets on inclusion, which is about time. I think it's brilliant for not just children with special needs, but also children from all walks of life to be able to deal with people with different capabilities, different needs, and to be able to understand that we're all different. But I think that's equal for children from different religions, from different backgrounds, with, you know, different setups in life. So I just think it's just another thing that they gain from being in a country like Dubai, where you have a variety of people from different places, 
you know, getting to know each other in, a, in, in, in one environment. And I think it's the same with kids with extra needs. And I think it's benefited Clemmy. And I, I plan on keeping her in um, mainstream school as long as possible. Right. Joined now on the line by Laura Evans, who is head of inclusion for Royal Grammar School Dubai, and also Susan Roberts from Witch School Advisory. Thank you so much both for joining us on the line for this important conversation. Hello. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's always difficult when there's lots of us on the line at the moment to know when everyone's allowed to speak. So I will clearly indicate so you so you know when you can come on the line. Uh, First of all, uh, tell me, Laura, why is inclusion so important at the Royal Grammar School Dubai? Hi, good afternoon. Inclusion is at the centre of everything we do at the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. I've been lucky enough to be with the school now for a decade and I've never worked in a school where inclusion has been prioritised in this way. Um, It's part of everything. Uh, The rows that we use to teach our children about the learning habits and the values of the school holds inclusivity as one of our key values and aspiration for all at the centre of our rows. It's about our attempts to identify all of our children all of the strengths, all of the support requirements to connect with the individual journey that they are on. And inclusion is central to everything we do here. We're very proud of all of our students, but our pupils of determination bring such richness to our community. Um, We're very lucky to have them. It's great to hear about an individual school's efforts there and the progress that has been made at the Royal Grammar School Dubai in order to you know, really increase the richness of, of the school community. Uh, Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor, is that si- a similar situation in all the schools of the UAE? Because, of course, you have that overview. Uh, indeed, yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say. I don't think anyone would disagree with me in saying that there is a, a vast, vast variety. Um, there are there are very, very different including prep, inclusion practices going on in different schools. And I think that's the case for, for most elements of education um, in Dubai. We have a lot of different kinds of schools, a lot of different uh, levels of focus in this area. Um, I have to say there have been massive, massive improvements. And there are schools like RGS that are doing a really, really fantastic job and have that real focus on it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the experience is fantastic for everybody still, unfortunately. You'll know this. Are our schools obliged to include students of determination? Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, uh, they are obliged to have inclusive practice and to, to be inclusive. However, there are limited limits to every school's capabilities, quite simply. There are limits to every school's resources, the amount of places available. And um, I think everyone could agree, I say, that it would be foolish for a school to take on and accept a child with additional needs if they did not have the resources there, the expertise there, to adequately support them. Um, there would be limited numbers of uh, children with additional needs, particularly complex needs, that they can take on and limited levels within that. So, yes, in theory, um, in practice, there are not an endless number of spaces available, unfortunately. So... Laura, at a premium school like Royal Grammar School Dubai, where you have all these incredible facilities, how has the inclusion uh, benefited your pupils of determination, for example? 
We've always been very well resourced and very well supported as an inclusion team at the RGS and that continues at the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Um, we have, we're a startup school, but we have tried to bring in as, as much experience and high level qualification that we can to the team and the team continues to grow as the numbers of children on roll grow. Um, Susan is quite right uh, that there, there are limits in, in what schools can offer, um, but we certainly look at each case very carefully from, from the very first moment that the child and the family make contact with the school. Um, we ensure that our admissions process uh, welcomes all, but pays very careful attention to what we need to have ready and what we need to be able to have in place to ensure that that child has a very successful transition into our school community and the longevity of the support plan as well. So we just heard uh, at the start of the interviews, um, Jenny, who got in touch with us, and she suggested that, you know, it's not just good for children with determinate, you know, with, with, with uh, learning difficulties or maybe physical difficulties to be in mainstream school. It's also really good for, for students who don't have those difficulties to see that there isn't really a normal, you know, everyone is different. Do you think, Laura, that your students have benefited from having a mix of different pupils in the school? Most definitely. They bring a richness to our community. They teach us as adults and our children and our families resilience, self-belief. Um, they show perseverance, which is one of our RGS values and learning habits. Um, we all um, learn day by day through the journeys and, and the struggles and the successes of those children around us. And that very much includes our pupils of determination here at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. So we are very much enjoying our special school segment, Eye on Education, which we will be running every Friday from 11am until 1pm. And it's our chance to really shine the spotlight on the top education stories of each week and to get analysis and comment from some of the world's experts. Right now, we are discussing the inclusion of children with learning difficulties or children of determination as the KHDA, which governs private schools in Dubai, has announced that 71% of schools are reaching their targets on inclusion. Uh, we've got two experts joining us on the subject. They've stayed with us over the break. Laura Evans, who is Head of Inclusion for Royal Grammar School Dubai, and Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor. We've also had a lot of messages coming in. Uh, for example, Dubai resident Ambreen's twin sons actually aren't going to mainstream school. Uh, they are uh, they go to a special centre and they have autism. She actually said it was financially impossible to send them to a mainstream school. The biggest concern that I have faced when it comes to inclusion in the mainstream schools is the financial aspect. The mainstream schools are accepting our kids with shadow teachers. And uh, I'm sure everybody knows that shadow teachers, um, you have to pay them separately. And uh, with our kids, we are paying in the centers for their therapies. We have to pay the school. And then this additional amount that you have to pay the shadow teacher is, um, 
it's too much i can speak on behalf of many parents here i that i know who are just going through the same thing they want to send their kids to the mainstream school and uh, they talk about it they say that there is inclusion but the point is that we cannot afford it we cannot afford or paying the shadows such a huge chunk of money qualified shadows are really expensive so Susan Roberts from which school advisor is this something that you hear about quite a bit uh, here in the UAE where there isn't a sort of a, a public paid for school sector well there is a public paid for school sector but for the vast majority of expats you are actually paying school fees here that's right in fact this this very specific issue of the um shadow teachers as they used to be called individual learning support assistant is the the preferred term now for a one to one um adult who would uh which would support um, a child or young person to access the learning uh, within a school. Um, it's a big expense and it's a very, very common strategy of, of supporting children and young people here at the UAE. Now, this really, really varies from school to school. And it's something I find very, very interesting looking into and speaking to parents and to schools. Um, depending on the scale of the uh, inclusion team, the resources there at the school's disposal to support these, these children and young people, um, the same child in one school may need um, call an ILSA, a one-to-one, um, and may not need that in another school because they may well have the in-house support there um, to, to manage their needs well and to allow them to access uh, their education in full. Um, and that's tough. That's really, really tough for the for the parents that are trying to do this. Now, what also varies enormously is that some schools will facilitate and support in finding that person with the parent and putting together a contract. They may even take part in the interviews to really guide them in that. And for some schools, the parents are really out there on their own trying to do that usually for the first time at some point, quite lost in doing so, um, and can have very, very varying results within that. And that can be a very, very stressful, difficult situation. Um, so that, that whole subject does put a lot of extra pressure on financially and emotionally for a lot of parents. Um, speaking to, to a parent this morning, um, I was told for a lot of parents, and depending on the, 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 the fees paid for the school, the school of choice, it can be quite likely that a parent may be looking at literally doubling what they would pay for a child to go to school in that the school fields they pay, they would need to pay that again to pay for their, their ILSA, um, their one-to-one, plus specialist therapies and things that, that may be um, within the school too. So they may actually be paying double what other, what other parents are paying. Now, obviously, the, 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 the sort of special needs spectrum is very, very broad indeed. And, and, and while... In some schools, you'll, you'll only be looking at somebody who just needs a sort of little bit of occupational therapy or, or just a little bit, you know, a sort of session once a week when they learn how to manage their moods or they learn how to, to deal with fidgeting, for example. Uh, so there is a sort of broad, broad scale. I mean, Laura, is it difficult? Uh, Laura Evans, Head of Inclusion for Royal Grammar School Dubai, I'll reintroduce you because we haven't heard you from you for a few minutes. Um, do you feel that it's difficult for schools, even premium schools like yourselves, to keep up with the demands of, of, of children of determination or children with special needs? No, I wouldn't say difficult, but I would say it does take patience. Um, it takes passion in your commitment to achieving that goal, and it takes a strong team around you. Um, so here at the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, that starts with our principal, um, has always been, will always be 
um, completely child focused um, and looking to see how we can nurture and shape their journey. Um, I have a fantastic team around me here in my inclusion staff. Uh, we pull together, we think, we reflect, we try to preempt, um, we try to plan and successful schools can do that. So it, it's not difficult, that's not the word I'd use, um, but it's something that you need to be committed to and you need to believe in to therefore find that drive to make it happen. We've had so many messages on this. I've got to go uh, to the news, uh, but we will. this is a topic that we will absolutely come back to because that was such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Laura Evans, Head of Inclusion for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, who you just heard from, and also uh, Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor, and also everyone who's been getting in touch with us on the text messages. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and yes, as I said, we will return to this topic again. Thank you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. So it's time now for our new feature. We've had lots of new features today, not least Eye on Education, which is a whole segment of, of new sort of spotlight on education news. Uh, but we're also launching My Classroom, which is a segment where we feature a teacher that rhymes, in a different country and find out what it's like to educate children in their part of the world. So if you've got loved ones or friends who are educators in your home country, please do nominate us. Uh, you can get in touch on 4001 uh, or, of course, you can phone or WhatsApp us on 04871 Today, we're going to cross live to Zanzibar as we're joined on the line by Mr. Innocent, who is the head teacher of the Seeds of Light School in Kizimkazi, uh, which is run by the charity HR Hope Foundation. Uh, hello there, Mr. Innocent. How are you? Thank you for joining us on the line. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. I'm so excited for this opportunity. I'm doing well. How is everything over there? We are doing well here as well. Thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate it. Now, I know that the Seeds of Light School provides free education for 53 students aged between four and seven years old. And there's also cockerels nearby. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about where your school is located? It sounds like it's quite a rural setting. All right. Thank you. Um our school is located in the southern part of Zanzibar, at Kizimkazim Kunguni. And are you in a, a city, an urban area, or are you in the countryside? Um, it's now in an urban area. It's uh, like in remote area, the village. Oh, so it's very remote. And so the children, are you based on the outskirts of a village? Do most of the students from your school live locally? Yes, you can say that. The kids are coming from poor families, so they're just living locally. How many children do you have in your classroom? Do you just have the one class with the 53 students or do you have several classes? Um, at our school, we have almost four classes, two classes for nursery and uh, two classes for climate level. Um, we have almost eight students right now, 
In kindergarten one, we have 25 uh, students. And in kindergarten two, we have 21 students. In standard one, for primary level, we have 16 students. And uh, in standard two, we have 18 students. So the total number is 18. Wow, it's increased since the last time I heard about it, that the size of the school has increased, which is wonderful. If the children, yeah. if the charity didn't run the, ch- the, the school, would the children be able to go to school? Okay, thank you. Um, starting here at school, we have uh, some challenges. For example, uh, sometimes uh, because of the weather, it is too hot. So, and we don't have funds in the class. So you find out the kids are struggling. Also, they, they are like uh, having a challenge because of the coldness. And it is difficult sometimes for kids to concentrate and to be comfortable in the class. And another thing, as I said, the kids, our school, it is in a remote area at the village. So you find out uh, most of the families are poor and uh, the kids might come at school with nothing. Even uh, they are failing to have a bottle of water for drinking or something to eat. Although we do provide some some breakfast at school, uh, but if someone doesn't have food, uh, what we are doing, uh, they share food. So also is a challenge to us. And also in some classes, we have slow learners. As we know, kids, they can't be the same. So we have some students who need other, they need special education, and other, they need enough time for a person to help, like an individual help. But sometimes the challenge is like, Maybe uh, the teachers are not enough to sit with the kid and give him or her the help. So you find out those kids with, uh, with uh, some challenges on learning, they are still struggling. They are slow learners and uh, they are not improving according to the situation that we have because they need more help from us. And also, uh, sometimes we are... We are, failing, we are failing to provide enough materials for the kids. For example, if you have uh, those kids from nursery classes, they are coming from home with nothing. They don't know even how to hold their pencil, how to write letter A. So uh, they need more practice on tracing letters, numbers. So that means they need more, more materials to practice. But you find out sometimes we have a challenge uh, with the splinter to produce more materials for mm. the kids so that they can improve more. So those are some challenges we can say we are facing in our school. Do you know, um, Mr. Innocent, it, it is quite amazing to speak to you over over this slightly crackly line, but it is amazing to speak to you from here in Dubai, uh, a very sort of, a very rich city where all of our children go to schools where they have ridiculous facilities. There's iPads everywhere and, and there's amazing there's amazing facilities. To speak to you where 
you know, where children are having to share food because they don't, ne- they, you know, their families aren't necessarily even rich enough to, you know, are, don't have enough money to send them into school with food. It is extraordinary hearing yeah. that that contrast. And it sounds like you mo- you do the most amazing work uh, at the school. Can you describe? A little bit about how the school looks. Now, I have seen pictures and I know it's in a rural community and, you know, that the earth is quite a rich red and it's a very lush environment. Uh, but is the, the school is built in, a, in the shape of a circle. Is that right? Sorry, can you repeat? Oh, yes, of course. I actually, I might move on to, to another question because we're about to go to a break and I want to make oh, sure right. I get to the question. So how important is the school within the community? Okay. Yeah, um, this school is, uh, we can say, is a precious thing to the, to the society. It's very, very important. As I said before, the families are poor and... Uh, as we know for us here, our school government, you find out a lot of challenges. One class, 80 students, one teacher. One class, 120 something kids, one teacher. So here the school is very important. Is it helps many kids from poor families to give their kids opportunity to get a, a quality education. And, and also we are happy with the school because it gives the kids a way towards their dreams compared to the government school, as I said, with the situation. So sometimes uh, the kids to be here, they are very happy. Even the society is very happy because they know their kids are going to, to have their dreams. And also we are taking care with the kids because they, uh, for us here, we have the a limit of numbers in the class. For example, one class cannot have more than 30 kids. So that means it's easy for us to manage, to take care for kids. So through that, the community is very hard. And also, the school is very important because sometimes when we receive some donations, we do share with the society. For example, uh, Sometimes volunteers can provide the food to the communities, some clothes, some toothbrushes and pests. So through these things, the school, it seems like very, very important to the society. Apart from that also, the school, it seems like uh, to give opportunities uh, to the community, especially employment opportunities is we have cleaners, we have drivers and teachers. So through those things, a school to be here is very important to the society, from the kids and to the, to the community in general. Mr. Innocent, uh, the head teacher of the Seeds of Light School in Kizimkazi, which is in Zanzibar. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating to speak to you. Oddly enough, I'm going to be going to Zanzibar over Eid, so I hope to visit the school at some stage. You're listening to The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. Yeah. On Dubai Eye 103.8. So Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, vice president and ruler of Dubai, has announced a new campaign to feed the hungry around the world. The project was announced on Twitter with this video. (laughs) 
The One Billion Meal campaign will begin at the start of Ramadan and will run until it completes its mission. Now, I'm sure you've heard a lot about this uh, with Serena on the Business Breakfast if you've been listening to the news so far because, of course, the ARN News Centre is covering the story in some detail. Food parcels are already being distributed in collaboration with several organisations, including the UN World Food Programme and, of course, the Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum Humanitarian and Charity Establishment. Meanwhile, the UAE has also set out a new donations regulatory law to govern charitable work and fundraising in the UAE. Her Excellency Tessa Hessa Talek, who is Assistant Undersecretary of Social Development in the Ministry of Community Development, uh, spoke to me yesterday. Uh, I managed to catch her on the line uh, just in time uh, to get uh, the latest on this announcement. And I started by asking her to outline the new donations regulatory law. What exactly does it have in it? The UAE community, UAE nationals and expats, people are living in this country are known for this value of giving. So it's very important value. We want to keep it. We want to maintain it. However, we want to make sure that those donations are reaching the right people at the right time. So the federal law number three, which was issued in 2021, the regulating donation includes collection of items and it means monetary value, whether it's cash or in kind, transferred or fixed, including national currency or foreign currency, exchange, bonds, checks, shares. All of these items are considered donations, things that people give to others to change their lives. This law was issued in order to manage and monitor the movement of the money or any uh, donation from the donator to the receiver. Plus, it gives us as authorities to monitor what's happening in between to make sure that that money or donation was treated in the right way, whether it's food, clothes, uh, furniture sometimes, different items, medicine, it depends and not going into any other areas that might affect the safety and the security of the people or the country, I'd say. So what is new about the donations regulatory law in the United Arab Emirates? It is the first of its kind and has two two main sections. Uh, It has the licensed entities and authorized entities. I must mention here that this law was developed in a very uh, close coordination and commitment between the Ministry of Community Development and our partners in the same field, to name them uh, Community Development in Dubai, Community Development in Dubai, and other Emirates, the Ministry of Justice. Everyone was involved in composing this law together. And we looked into different areas, even the NGOs were part of putting their ideas and thoughts into making this law a unique to serve everyone in the best way. So what's new about this law is that we have two different entities, that the licensed entities and the authorized entities. I will read it to, the, to you here as it is stated in the law. Licensed entities are charitable associations, federal, local, and non-government organizations, uh, entities that have been established with charitable functions as a core business. So this is mentioned in the decree of the entity itself, that they are authorized to collect and donate. However, Authorized entities, which the majority of the entities in the country will be, they are people who need a permit to collect any kind of donations. uh, And they get that permit from the concerned authorities, whether it's a local government or the federal government. 
and has to be in coordination with a licensed entity or between brackets, charitable authorities. So that's the difference. So if we want to say one example of licensed entities is like the Red Crescent, the Red Cross, these entities are known for collecting charities and giving it to people. And that's their core business. And that's written in their decree when they were issued. However, when we talk about authorized entities are people who want to do a fundraising activity. It could be an NGO, which is specialized in, let's say, education or specialized in, let's say, something related to climate change or environment. It could be a private sector that wants to do a fundraising activity for cancer or any other purposes. They need to conduct the authority within that emirate, get the license, get it approved, and then through a specialized entity, which is a charitable entity, collect the money or the donations for people. Now, if, for example, you were to go ahead and start a collection, for example, for a, a charity in Ukraine, and you didn't have a permit, and needless to say, you didn't have a license because you're not an organization, could you be prosecuted for violating the law as you've just described it? Definitely, Georgia, definitely. Uh, the first term in the law states clearly that a normal person is prohibited from collecting or accepting donations. A normal person, an individual cannot do that. If I am a person and I have something to donate, I go to authorized entities, or uh, maybe we can talk about personal relations or knowing people later on. However, a person cannot collect unless is an entity that is licensed, as you mentioned. And when we talk about the penalty, yes, there are fines which varies between 200,000 up to half a million dirhams. That will be imposed on whoever doesn't follow the the law. So how can well-meaning individuals, schools, groups, you know, my, frankly, my girlfriends who are so keen to contribute something, for example, to refugees who are struggling, how can people conduct charitable activities legally? In order to conduct charitable activities legally, they have uh, two options. The first option is to do it through charitable organizations, and there are many licensed in the country. We, you can check even in mocd.gov.ae, the website, official website of the, of the ministry, where we have a list of authorized entities. However, they can also conduct the authorities that are into the community services, like the Community Development Authority in Dubai, Community Development Authority in Dhabi, or other Emirates, and they have the access to the right channels. Another option is to apply for the for a license. But for individuals, as I mentioned earlier, individuals cannot do charitable or fundraising activities. They can give if they want to the right channels. Or another thing also what I want to mention here regarding individuals, if me as, a, as myself, as Hassa, I want to donate and help people. And we know actually in a few weeks we are starting the holy month of Ramadan and it is a very high season of giving. Many people like to give, donate during that month. We would like to also emphasize on this. You either go through the right channels, authorized channels and licensed authorities, or do it with people you know personally. You personally know that X person is in need of clothes, in need of food, in need of shelter, whatever it is, and trusted people. Any activity that includes marketing, or messages through social media will be fined and will be considered as against this law. So, for example, if I want to give the workers who contribute enormously to my community, if I want to give them food or if I wanted to give them a gift for Ramadan directly, 
that is allowed. Yes, that is allowed. Okay, that's very encouraging because, like we said, we have got Ramadan coming up and it is that time of giving. I mean, this gives us a real sense of just how seriously the UAE is taking this. There's clearly been a great deal of thought in laying out this legislation. There's serious punishments if you don't follow it. Was there a particular reason why it was felt that it was needed? UAE is ranking internationally one of the first countries in giving. And we wanted to regulate this to make sure that all these amounts that people are donating are reaching to the right places. And that's also to protect people, the givers before the receivers of these donations. It's kind of protection. It's not holding them from doing that. It's protecting them and protecting their donations in order to make sure that it reaches to the right people. And it is also an uh, advancing and highlighting this value in the community. So like we want to keep it and we want to, we want to spread it for us, for the community, our children. We, we want everyone to contribute and still give, but give with trust. That is Her Excellency Hessa Talek, Undersecretary, Assistant Undersecretary of Social Development in the Ministry of Community Development. A really clear outline there on exactly how you can uh, give to charity without getting caught out by that new donations regulatory law. Do get in touch with us uh, with the details of your favourite charity, how you choose to give, uh, particularly with Ramadan coming up. We'd be really interested uh, to get your views on that. Keeping you updated and informed. You're listening to The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai I 103.8. So one of the most exciting things that has come out of the Dubai International Boat Show this year is an announcement by four UAE residents that they're planning to row across the Atlantic Ocean. They're called the Arabian Rowing Team and they will row completely unassisted 5,000 kilometres from La Gomera off the coast of Africa to English Harbour in Antigua. Uh, let's find out more with one of the intrepid figures. Uh, Toby Gregory is one of uh, the four-man team and he joins me now on the line. Toby, how are you? Good morning, Georgia. Thank you for having us on there this morning. Absolute pleasure. I, I'm absolutely astonished that you're going to, uh, to, to do this trip. It sounds incredibly dangerous. What is the cause? Tell us more. Look, I, I think this has been seven years in the making. It started as a dream many years ago and, and slowly, bit by bit, we've turned that dream into a reality. And so we'll be set off this December and be at sea for roughly 40 to 60 days. But most importantly, on the journey there, as we kind of talk to people here in the UAE, as we talk to people internationally, which has started now, and we hope to inspire more people to, to take on challenges of their own. It doesn't have to be that you row an ocean or you, you climb Everest. It's about kind of personal challenges and personal feats and success. We're also going to be raising awareness about plastic in the oceans and doing some programs with the UN. So hugely exciting few months ahead. And so you're one of the, the boaties, uh, and you're English, but what about your other uh, rowers? Yes, indeed. So it's a, it's a team of four. We've got Fahim Al-Kasimi, who's, who's going to be the first Emirati, the first person from the UAE um, to ever cross the Atlantic Ocean, which will be a massive feat because in, in recent years, while this may sound a rather puzzling and, and, and concerning task or adventure, it's something actually that's growing in popularity. Um, and in the next couple of years, we'll see more and more nations attempt it. So, you know, for him personally, and, and, and given the UAE's historic link to the sea back, you know, from the days of pearl fishing straight through today with Jebel Ali and trade and logistics, 
Um, it, it will be a monumental time and, and something he's immensely proud of. We also have James Rayleigh, um, who's from the UK, and um, a, a lovely gentleman called Ray, who most people may know as the cat vet. But in his part-time, or his spare time rather, he does ultramarathons and Ironman competitions. Um, so they're, they're the four people coming with us on this crossing. Oh, well, he sounds like a good man to put, uh, to put the rose, you know, the, the orlocks, to put in the orlocks so that you can uh, make sure you make good progress. You can see I'm sort of swimming around searching for the right sort of analogy for, for, this, for this boat. It is going to be an incredibly uh, hard physical and also mental challenge. Uh, I remember we spoke about it briefly in the past and, and we mentioned this, this thing, rogue waves, which sound absolutely horrendous. How are you going to be dealing with the, the sort of very dangerous environment? I look, with, with everything in life, um, be it something you're trying to achieve through business or, or personal challenges, it, it's just about planning ahead, assessing the dangers and putting steps in place. So for us, we've analysed the weather patterns over the past 15 years for the Atlantic. At the time of year we'll be crossing, we've looked at the sea states. We're aware that we're likely to pass through three significant storms. We're, we're aware that we're likely to encounter rogue waves, which are basically waves that look like normal waves until you're upon them, at which point they're just slightly larger, in some cases much larger than the other waves around them. And so it's just it, it's planning. So at that time, you know, what are the drills? What are the processes? What's individual's responsibility at that time? So it's less about thinking and trying to make a decision as to, right, OK, this is here. What do we do? It's more about doing what we practice and just putting the plan to action. How long does it take to get there? Um, it, yeah, it depends on who you ask. Uh, so, <laughs> look, I, 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 th I think for us, if we did it in 40 to 45 days, we'd be incredibly pleased with that. It's 5,000 kilometers. And, and really, we're at the mercy of nature. So if the wind isn't blowing in our favor, if the conditions aren't right, then it could take up to 60 days. We'll, we'll probably take between 60 and 75 days worth of food, which is an awful lot of food to carry when you think that we need to consume between six and 8,000 calories a day for each person. And so is the idea that one person rows and you do it in shifts? That would be very nice. Um, sadly, it's two people rowing <laughs> and uh, it's, it's two on, two off, 24 hours a day for the 45 to 60 days. So roughly you're rowing for about 12 hours a day, which is incredibly grueling. And you talked earlier about the, the physical challenges, which that relates to, but also mentally just being on the oars, you know, being in the sunlight, being in a confined space. We all know what it was like during lockdown and with COVID when we were confined to our homes for a brief period. Well, imagine being confined to a boat that's less than eight metres long and not being able to move off of it for, for 40 days. So actually, in, in hand with the physical preparation and the 90 minutes of exercise we're doing a day, we're also um, seeing psychologists, um, um, mental counsellors and other people to really ensure that we're properly prepared um, from, a, from, a, from a mental side and a psychological side to this too. I go back to the first question I asked. Remind me why you were doing this again? I think there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things, and, and the why for each person is deeply personal. You know, for, for me personally, there's, there's a number of different reasons. Um, I, I think to be defined by the challenges that I face and, and how I handle them. Um, but also what I've discovered, and this was part of the motivating fact, to turn the dream into the reality when talking to people about it. They were incredibly inspired and they too have since gone off to do things that they wanted to do that they put on the back burner. You know, we're so conditioned to, to turn up. We need to do work. We need to do this. We need to do other things. We put ourselves last. You know, as a, as a, as a parent 
of two children, you know, I, I probably have half an hour or 20 minutes to myself each day. So it's, it's really about turning that around and say, OK, I, I want to do something for me now. And this is part of that. Well, the very best of luck to you. We will be following your journey very closely. That is the Arabian rowing team. They will be rowing completely unassisted across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, pleasure to have Toby Gregory on the line. Uh, Toby, best of luck with the training. Uh, and we, yeah, like I said, we will be following your path. Thank you very much. They can follow us on um, Arabian Ocean Rowers and um, Instagram. Ah, so at Arabian Arabian Ocean Rowers. Ocean rowing, uh, well, Arabian Ocean Rowing Team. Perfect. There we uh, go. Let's get that right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. A pleasure. Keeping you updated. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolly on Dubai Eye 103.8. So the reason why Andrew is in this studio isn't just to answer questions along the lines of where would he go on his boat if he had one, uh, but also do the sports news. So what's been going on in the football, Andrew? Okay, big night of Europa League action. And it's no coincidence I'm going to start with West Ham because I know now that you're actually interested in them after our conversations from previous so, weeks. So I'm... Oh, no, 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 you've got that wrong. Yes. I'm not interested in them. You're interested yes. in them because they're your team. Yes, but now that because they're my team, you're now interested I'm in now them as well. I'm interested in them as well. Okay. And I'm going to keep that going until you really <laughs> become a supporter. They all need to overturn a 1-0 aggregate scoreline against Sevilla if they are to reach the quarterfinals of the Europa League. It's after they lost in the first leg of the last 16 tie in Spain last night. Manager David Moyes was disappointed his side didn't get a goal. We need to get sharper. We need to be quicker to the ball in the ball. We need to be more aggressive. All those things to get us the get us over the line a little bit. And let's be fair, we've done a lot of good things tonight. We just couldn't really take the one or two opportunities we got. You just need to get sharper. It's true. That's, I mean, that, that I, I hear that that's that's the official terminology. You just need to get sharper. And you've Bring obviously realised that, that over the last few weeks, kind of not been hitting the target that much. So yes, I'm very sorry to hear that. How about uh, the Scottish team? Rangers. Yes. Now, they've been doing spectacularly well in the Europa League recently and they put on another great performance last night, winning 3-0 at home to Red Star Belgrade. Uh, elsewhere, Galatasaray held Barcelona to a 0-0 draw in Spain. Atalanta beat Bayer Leverkusen 3-2 and Sporting Braga beat Monaco 2-0. Chelsea was in action as well. Yes, this is in the English Premier League. They won 3-1 despite all the things going on off the pitch. They were at Norwich last night. It came on the day that UK government announced sanctions on the club's Russian owner, Roman Abramovich, which will have far-reaching effects on the club. Manager Thomas Tuchel says as playing and coaching staff, they'll just keep doing their jobs. As long as we have enough shirts and as long as the bus is full of fuel, we will arrive and we will be competitive. Um, this is what everybody can be sure of and this is what we demand of ourselves. But messages for peace can never be wrong. Lovely to see the Chelsea fans chanting the name of Roman Abramovich during that match. Righty ho, okay. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, a very interesting situation there. Obviously, uh, Roman Abramovich, uh, I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, have, has decided to sell uh, the club and, and 
allegedly it's going for around four billion, which is uh, absolutely fascinating. Another team that recently uh, got purchased by uh, a, a Middle East player uh, is, of course, Newcastle. Yes, and they were struggling for quite some time in the league this season. They have now gone nine games unbeaten. Their fine form continued. They came from behind to beat Southampton 2-1 last night and uh, they're now 10 points clear of danger, the relegation zone. Boss Eddie Howe says Joe Willock's performance showed exactly why his side have been doing so well of late. I thought he was immense tonight physically um, and you can see that's highlighted really by the tackle at the end. So the last few seconds of the game and he's come all the way back and I think that's the hallmark of this team. Uh, during this run, it's been been the effort and commitment from the players has been second to none. So moving on from football to rugby. Yes, and Six Nations is back and they're playing tonight. Wales Rugby Union captain Dan Bigger insists revenge won't be on their mind taking on France. They were denied a Grand Slam en route to last year's championship when they lost in Paris. Bigger has called their opponents, who are still undefeated, incidentally, this year. They're the form side in world rugby. We're really not bothered if us winning stops France. The, with the with the Grand Slam or Championship, we really are just worried about making sure we we finish the campaign on a high from from our end, rather than rather than worrying about France's Grand Slam or or Championship bid. And cricket. Yes, England could be without the bowling of Mark Wood for the rest of the first test against the West Indies. He went off with an elbow injury as the hosts took control of the match in Antigua. Interim head coach says he'll be a huge loss to the attack if he doesn't return. You need, you know, 90 mile an hour plus guys who can reverse swing the ball on the, in these conditions. Uh, uh, the goal does for your team. Um, so it will obviously be disappointing if he isn't going to be involved in the second innings, but we'll have to uh, wait and see. And the West Indies will resume 62 runs ahead on 373 for nine, and that gets underway at 6pm our time. Andrew Hosey from the ARN News Centre, thank you very much indeed. A fantastic sports update. What are your plans for the weekend? Um, I, uh, I've got some friends coming in, Ooh. actually, from home. Very, so, what, from the UK? From the UK, so I'll be catching up with them for the first time in two and a half years. It is visitor season, it I have really to say. Is. My sister just signed up yesterday for a week in Dubai. Uh, and I, I, think it, I think it was the pictures of the beach that sold her. They're saying it's lovely and spring-like in the UK at the moment, which means that there are some flowers out, but it's still freezing cold. It's still about 12 degrees. Yeah. Keeping you updated. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolly On Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, did you know that March is reading month here in the United Arab Emirates? It was established in 2007. And it's an annual nationwide initiative uh, held every March. Uh, It's being held uh, this year under the theme UAE Reads. And the aim behind it is to foster reading as a daily habit among communities across the region. To tell us more about some of the activations uh, that the UAE is implementing in order to get people reading a bit more uh, is the Ministry of Youth and Culture at his, the acting undersecretary there is His Excellency Ali Al Shali. And uh, fantastically, he's been able to join us uh, live on the line now on Microsoft Teams. Uh, how are you, Your Excellency? Thank you very much, Georgia, and thank you for having me on. I told the team that I have some flu. I hope you don't mind. 
and I hope your audience uh, doesn't get disturbed by any means. Oh, that's so kind of you. The great news about Zoom conversations is that you literally, or Microsoft Teams conversations, is that we can't get flu through the screens. So that is very good news. But I do wish you all the, wet, all the best, and I hope you get better soon. And thank you for nevertheless uh, upholding the commitment to come and talk to us on the radio. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, even when you have mentioned our biggest rival, oh. Dubai Art. Art is not a big competitor of reading but of course art and culture are are always intertwined and interconnected i was joking <laughs> reading actually is looking at words decoding them getting the meanings whether it's about car mechanics arts cooking what have you as far as you are adopting the habit of reading in your life you are a civilized person. That is the aim of UAE Reads Month. It's, it's, it's an annual event that we supervise and organize in the Ministry of Culture in collaboration and coordination with our partners in the federal and the local governments within the UAE, where tens or let me say hundreds of activities happen throughout the society and communities, whether it's school, schools or even prisons, if you wish. I mean, art centers, uh, organizations, banks, etc. Amazing to hear about the work you guys are doing. Let's start with the, the easy people to persuade, which is, of course, the children. It's quite tricky to get adults to do anything you want them to. But, but children, you can, you can really enliven their imagination with books. So I imagine it's quite easy to get them into reading. You think so? I mean, maybe our generation, but the, the current generation is so attached and this is not a problem. It's, it's an area of improvement that we see very positively. But getting the reading material, getting the content into where the children would like to be, whether it's a physical place or a digital uh, space, is, is what we are aiming at with, in, in, in collaboration with our partners. Children today are very smart and very connected to the world that they don't get convinced with the old material or the superficial ones. So your stories, be it literature, uh, should be uh, forthcoming, forward-looking, uh, future uh, uh, embracing, if you wish. Oh, that's interesting. So you literally, you capture their imagination with, a sort of, uh, with, with stories of the future, effectively. Children are also... Um, more attracted to things that are similar. Let me emphasize on the word similar, not mirroring, but similar to what happens in their daily lives. If we import books from other parts of the world and the the challenges uh, discussed in these stories are so irrelevant to the children, the book will be put away right away. Uh, we are lucky today to have uh, an Emirates Publisher Association that is active, with over 200 members from all over the world producing books that are suitable for the uh, taste of readers here in the UAE. And when I say readers and the month of reading, I talk about the 10 million people living on this earth, I mean, in this UAE, within this uh, geography. Everybody is invited to read, no matter how old, how young, what he does, you're invited to read in the month of, uh, of, uh, of March and afterwards.
So I know that you're going to be introducing a free subscription to read ebooks and also a free subscription for people to listen to audiobooks for three months. That is via the Abu Dhabi Arabic Language Centre. How important is it that people are encouraged to read in Arabic? How, how much of part does that play in preserving the Arab language? See, we, we have no doubt that reading hones the language skills whether be it the mother tongue or the second language. I would like to talk about the word free here. We are, we, we think of ourselves as enablers. So we make materials, materials or content available for free because we think if the reader is serious, then it is easier for him to get it for free. But if the reader is not willing, if, if somebody is not willing, then it's useless. We have other ways to 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 motivate so motivating uh, uh, reluctant readers or encouraging serious readers by making materials available in mother tongue is is something that we've successfully done in the uh, the couple of years uh, previously and we'll continue to do I know that you've got uh, the UAE National Reading Index Survey, that is uh, the results of which are due to be released at the end of this month. I've only got about 30 seconds left with you. What books do you like to read, sir? (laughs) See, it's a very tricky question. I I usually don't answer it for two reasons. It has a commercial angle and I can't get into this area. And it's also very limiting to me and to the audience. So I would say, personally, I like to read literature, be it poetry, or novels, and in Arabic, but this is me. I mean, whatever you read, Georgia or anybody else is, is up to you as far as you are uh, uh, adopting the habit of reading. Absolutely. And, and I have to say, I am a massive bookworm myself, so I'm a huge fan of reading and I'm a huge fan of this campaign. Thank you so much for your time, sir, and, and get well soon. Uh, we've been speaking to His Excellency Ali Al-Shali, who is... Uh, Thank you for having me and have a good day. And we may coincide in the Dubai art. Enjoy it. Yes, I hope so. Thank you so much, sir. An absolute pleasure to speak to you. Uh, His Excellency Ali Al-Shali, who is the Acting Undersecretary uh, for the Ministry of Youth and Culture. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.